Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I get to chat to a man local to me in Philadelphia, Max Langheit. Max is the current head of performance and innovation at Philadelphia Union MLS team. He has enjoyed a great career with strength and conditioning and leadership roles in both professional baseball and football, both in Europe and also in America. This episode with Max focuses on his journey experience and also his strategies at balancing backroom performance with the organizational demands that come from the front office ownership, financial and change management perspectives. Regardless of what level you're currently functioning at as a performance practitioner, this episode will no doubt add some value to your practice. So I'm sure you'll enjoy this one. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Inform Performance is a proud partner of HUMAC Norm by CSMI. One of the best and simplest ways we can resolve a limb symmetry strength deficit is simple isolated joint training on the HUMAC Norm isokinetic system. Isokinetic resistance allows the athlete to stress their muscles at full capacity throughout the entire range of motion. Supplement your athlete rehab or performance program with a highly effective and data-rich machine by using the HUMAC Norm Isokinetic System by CSMI. To learn more about the new HUMAC Norm and refurbished machines, visit humacnorm.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Annie McDonald, and here is today's guest, Max Langheit. Max, welcome to the show, mate. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have another local uh, Philadelphia-based person on. So, um, yeah, welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Appreciate it. Exactly. Not that many people in Philly. Yeah, I think you're maybe number two of the the, the Philly-based people. Probably need more, given how many teams there is locally. But, uh, no, it's good to have you on, mate. Um, you know, you've had a, an interesting career, and the crux of today's chat will be around leadership and how you personally interface between um, the performance side and then also the kind of front office or corporate side of being at a professional club. Um, a lot of the questions that I want to ask you today will probably flow nicely along your career journey. With that said, would you be able to kind of walk us through your earlier career beginnings? And, and maybe that's the, the logical place for us to start. Yeah, sure. Um, no, I, I, I do not necessarily have the, the um, typical all-in-all pathway that other people um, have in, in the industry. So I originally started out, I mean, I was a, a junior athlete um, myself then got got hurt um, in when I was 15 and, and just discovered, you know, that there's more things to life than just playing, playing and being on a court. Um, so stopped my career, if you will, then um, always was a big fan of late night TV shows. So um, meaning, you know, Johnny Carson, um, Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien. Um, and then I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. So um, my first step was then to go to the radio, um, was part of the morning show crew while I was still in school, um, made it slowly then and, and wrote jokes essentially. And then studied acting a little bit later because I wanted to be in front of a camera instead of behind the microphone only, right? So studied acting, but financed my um, my studies with personal training. So, and then a little bit fast forward, then actually coached coached actors more than um, actually acting myself. Um, so, and then essentially also, you know, quite a bachelor's in in coaching. So, and from there, then went to a TV show, late night show, but not comedy, late night talk show as an editor. But quickly realized that, you know, I, I love coaching and sports way too much. So and then pivoted back. And that was 2011, um, pivoted back 
into the sports only because then I realized this is what I want to do and, and I love coaching. So um, then opened up my own sports performance facility in, in Hamburg back in Germany um, ran that from 2011 until um, 2017, sold this. Um, and during that time already, um, Hamburg, um, we have St. Pauli and Hamburg SV, right, with other um, athletes. But St. Pauli essentially asked me if I want to jump on full-time already in 2016. I thought my employees are happy if, if the boss is not around anyway. So um, took over their, their youth program. And that's how my journey essentially started um, with in, in professional um, sports or with professional um, uh, football teams. Um, yeah, from from there, did my masters in between while I was while I was um, um, running my my gym um, at the ACU in Australia, and uh, so masters in, in, in high performance sport was it called or it's still called and. Um, yeah, 2018 got promoted with with um, FC Nuremberg, who I was working for back then, for the Bundesliga. Um, then moved to the United States afterward. Finished on a high. Um, started with with uh, um, the San Francisco Giants in Major League Baseball as their strength conditioning um, or assistant strength conditioning coordinator, but rehab coordinator, so responsible for all the seven affiliates, setting up a new a new rehab structure there and um but then quickly got back to to football and then worked for for the sounders um in in major league uh, soccer from the sounders then to uh, the the San Jose earthquakes and from the earthquakes and now at where what you post uh, a philly boy so being with the philadelphia union now as as head of uh, performance and innovation very cool do you know we've with all the episodes we've done, I've lost count, and this isn't a knock on those people. I've lost count of how many people have said that their original career beginnings were ex-athlete or failed athlete. I've never had somebody down the acting path, so that was uh, that was definitely a unique one for us. Um, one of the things I'm curious about: you get a lot of people who work in high performance and then eventually leave high performance and set up their own private facility. You've obviously done the opposite, where you've had your own gym, and now you work in performance. Is there, you know, along the lessons learned from having your own facility beforehand, has that helped in any way how you run a program now? I'm just curious, like, is there benefits to going the other direction? No, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, and I, I think I have not been asked that question before. So, <laughs> so I, I, I believe yes, and I think there's two two reasons to that. And um, do you know Lockie Wilmot? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So and back in the days, him and I were talking and we're, we're speaking about, you know, when you hire people, um, it's a quality to essentially, if, if you have been a personal trainer, a personal trainer in, the, in, in your past, you know how to, how to interact with people because you always have to sell yourself or the product right? So you always need to relate to people and from like all different walks of life. So I think running your your own performance center, which overall in, in the world, you can only finance with, um, yeah, there's the fancy athlete part of it, but you can only finance it with general population. So I think what I learned in that time is, is number one, to interact and to really um put together a program that people would buy because if you work with athletes or with in a, in a team setting, you know, at the end of the day, you can also just make it mandatory, right? For people just, if it's good or not, it doesn't matter if it leads to results or not. Yes, of course it does matter. But in the, at the end of the day, you don't, you need to convince people in a certain way, but um, you still have the, you know, let's say legitimate power to just say like, no, you just do those five sets. I don't care if you like it or not. But if you actually sell your product and depend on it, you know, you actually need to show them the benefits and need to show tangible results for them to give you your money. So I think um, you, you develop a, a system to, to um, create reproducible results if you do that, because otherwise you won't be able to make money. Um, so I think that's what I learned. Like those are two components there. I think number one, interacting um, with, with people and really 
being able to relate to to all sorts of different personalities. Um, and the second part is really creating a system um, that is that is leading to re reproducible results. And I think the third component is is the business head that you kind of like learn how to actually. You can't only rely on what you do on the on the you know ground or in the gym or on the turf, whatever, um, or in the weight room. You really need to understand. Well, some the money needs to come from somewhere, and also you need to spend the money in different aspects, right? Yeah, maybe you want a new bench press, whatever, right? But you go like, okay, how many people can use a bench press at one time? You're like, okay, this may not be the best investment at this very moment so what would be a better investment at the very moment so i think um that helps you to understand the people that you're dealing with when you're in professional sports already because you're like oh i understand why he may say no to me now or before you actually come with a request to your sporting director gm board whatever you need to understand okay there's many driving forces here so um, which which one should I now push for, which I strongly believe in and which one is kind of like, you know, it would be great if, but it's not necessary or mandatory. So you kind of like get really selective in, in that regard. And, um, you know, you make your mistakes like negotiation and whatnot also helps. And then having hired people in the past helped me to potentially, hopefully, um, not have made that many hiring um mistakes when i was working in professional sports that definitely not that resonates with me i was i heard myself kind of talking to a, a patient yesterday when i was in a clinic as a physio yeah and i was coaching them an exercise and i just sort of heard myself speaking for a second and uh, i don't know why but it just reminded me of me as a personal trainer the way i was kind of yeah. packaging verbally what they were doing and why so yeah it, it really interesting to hear the kind of parallels of um your experiences being a personal trainer prior to being yeah. in the performance space. Um, yeah, I love, like everybody, I think I can only recommend, I'm always looking when I see, a, when I see somebody's um, resume um, for positions we have, I was like, oh, did that person actually, um, you know, do personal training in the past? Because I know if you've been a successful personal trainer, you're going to be a good coach um, um, or a person that's able to coach somebody else. Um, but it's, it's the pathway is always people are not patient, right? They always want to directly yeah, yeah, do the bachelor's and then they think, um, oh, I'm going to just choose whichever team I want in professional sports. And that's how I'm going to, how I'm going to start. And, and they don't see the value in, you know, potentially starting slow to finish, to finish fast. It's a marathon, not a sprint, as they always say. Right? I always think as well, and, and this is probably true of being in a clinic or in a gym, private practice before being in a sports setting. Yeah. If you can make a success and be busy enough in those environments, working one-on-one -on -one with people, you it probably shows that you've got the the capacity to be, you know, high energy or socially dynamic enough when you're tired. Yeah. You know, the sixth, seventh, eighth session of the day working with someone, can you still have the enthusiasm and and deliver your, your personality to that client athlete whoever it is can you kind of can you maintain a certain sort of social dynamic endurance wise i think that's exactly that's exactly it like coaching for eight hours straight is very very hard um and keeping like you said your energy level up there and still for the last client being able to um you know to give everything you have and then just you know once you're home just fall asleep so and that's yeah. that's um um because you can afford <laughs> something to eat first no, i'm kidding um so the i i guess you hit the nail on the head there like the fact that you just continuously coach if you're a person you coach you coach you coach you coach you coach and you do your mistakes and you learn um how to again um, speak coaching to use um to use nick winkelman's um you know terminology here as well and that's that's why i think personal training is a fantastic fantastic tool um leading into professional sports as well yeah you know you mentioned a number of teams that you've you know worked through over the years when you moved into a, a senior role just to take a bit of a sort of sidestep from what we have been talking about did you ever kind of identify or realize a sort of a gap in your skill set when you'd get to you know the next team or the next level and maybe your responsibilities change um and i guess the reason i ask is I've got no doubt that there'll be 
somebody listening where there's probably parallels between your experience of kind of climbing up? Yeah, um, 100%. And you never, like, as they say, you don't know what you don't know. Um, so I think that's, that's one aspect to always, to always keep in mind. We, we all have our biases. We all have our mental models. We all have our, we see the world with our own eyes. Um, so, so I believe the, to kind of like lead into your question, I think observational skills are, are, you know, very, very important and, and, and critical thinking um, skills kind of like to identify gaps um, because you, you essentially observe the world around you and then you realize, okay, what is needed, um, if you will. And can I feel like with the current skill set, with the current personality, with my current, um, you know, skill set, um, am I able to fill that gap? So I think you can either go from the outside in perspective or the inside out. I think from, for me, it was it was the outside in, um, which which was okay. How does the environment look like, um, and what do I believe in? So, as in, like, what is what is my philosophy? What what is it that I want to accomplish, um, and and how can I now help, like both at the same time, to to um, reach the next level. So to give to to give you an example. Um, like at at St. Pauli, um, who just were short of making it back to the Bundesliga after so many years, would have been amazing. Um, the just want to put that in there. Um, the, what I found when I was working with with them then full time on on site was you come in with a certain idea, like I do this, this, and this, and this, and then you realize this is not possible. So. You need to realize, okay, in this case, the coaches um, ha- have zero understanding for what you're doing. So now how can you, first of all, um, and you only have a certain time frame anyway, right, um, to work with the players. So how do you now educate them? So a big a big component for me was at St. Pauli, just actually speaking to the coaches and, and um, having them understand why what um, I want to do um, is potentially different to what what they have been experiencing or had been experiencing in the past, um, and then go like, how does that fit your your um, um, what you want to accomplish with the players? Um, another component was, or another example, excuse me, was in in Nuremberg, which is a little bit more evident. I was trying to go and job by job here. Um, is the the situation was a little bit tough when I was going to Nuremberg. The the head coach. Asked me if I want to come on, come on and uh, on the team and and be the the first team um, SNC coach. But there was another person already there, so um, you could either have that become a battle um, for power, right? Or you go in and go like, okay, doesn't help the players. You want to be successful at the end. We all want to achieve the same thing. So so I then, which back in the day wasn't a thing. Now it is. Like I essentially. I don't want to say invent, but I realized the, the position as rehab um, strength and conditioning coach. So I essentially put my desk and deliberately into the, the, the physios, um, you know, or in the medical area. So I was around the physios um, all the time and, and then was essentially helping them or, or they did the treatment and I then took the guys into the um, weight room or did rehab on the field with them. So, which then came was was very um, you know unique, but it also helped me in my personal um, um, journey to to really understand the medical side of things and know their terminology and and so on. So it was a gap on my end, but I I filled that gap for me because I saw that gap in um, the structure of the club, right? So hence I helped the club, which was the gap. But then I I, um, I learned I learned along the way, and it was um, you know very fulfilling. And and nobody stepped on my toes, if you will, at that in that moment as well, because everybody was like, oh cool, he's doing something we haven't done before. Yeah, okay, it seems to work. Let's just have him do that. Um, so that was that was actually quite quite um, good and fulfilling. So that was that was something. And I think 
I don't bore you with with other um, examples now moving forward, but in every single club that I worked with, I was like, okay, what is it that I identify? What is it that I observe um, through, you know, either conversations or just really just um, with my own eyes seeing? And is is that something I'm good at? That I'm or that I'm interested in and not good at yet or don't know about. So okay, upskill myself to just fill that that hole, or or I just go in there because it's it's along my skill set anyway. And then they're typically always very thankful that somebody is is filling that gap. Long answer to your question. No, no, it's a really good um, a, a good example of working harmoniously and sort of combining your self development, so your technical needs or employment needs with the organisations. I think it's quite easy with the sort of insecurity of working in a team setting to sort of, you know, have your foot in the door working for the team, but also be kind of thinking, you know, what do I need to get out of this just in case, or what's next for me just in case. I think it's, it's a really nice example where someone's actually aligning themselves with the organization to both, you know, both parties benefit. Yeah. I think that the, the question that I myself ask and that I can just always recommend asking is uh, how can I add value and that's maybe it's once again something that that you learn from from running your own business first but how can I add value for the individual or for the team that that I work for that I work with Um, and that's that's kind of like always the mindset is it what I'm doing actually you know once again adding adding value and then you can decide no then you go like okay what else can I do or you say yes and then Everybody's happy at the end of the day. You, because you get better at what you do and um, and be the club or the entity you're working for because you're filling that that, that gap hole. On this kind of theme of like, um, I guess, development, you're one of the few people I can think of in high-performance sport that's completed an MBA. Can you kind of give me the, give us the backstory of kind of why you did it, where you did it and, you know, Talk us through that. Um, there's more and more people doing it now, which yeah. is kind of like um, great. And and I like the 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 idea came. I either like I think it was three years ago or four years ago. Um, I was very close to starting a PhD. Um, in, in pattern recognition with with my alma mater in, in in Australia, and then I realized, or like my thought was then, but what is a PhD essentially helping me? I was already in professional sport. I was already, you know, for for what it's worth, you know, successful, um, if you will. And so I was, what does it really help? me now personally besides becoming because a phd is nothing else but becoming the number one person in the world on one specific topic okay so which is cool which is interesting which is you know fulfilling in a certain way but what does it you know what does it help to to your point to to become a better practitioner um or or to to add value to a program so and then and I never crossed my mind up until that point, but then I think it was in a conversation with with Joycey, um, and he he started a, uh, an MBA, and I was like, wait a minute, that's that's a good idea because you because you do business in a way, but it why does it why is it important? Because you not only learn a different skill set or, or um, a whole different you know, whatever academic uh, degree, but what you essentially learn is also to, to manage specifically upwards, right? So if you think about, if you think about the, the idea of where do you want to be and what do I have to um, know or, 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 or be able to, to portray as that as that individual in a certain position, you need to surround yourself with those people. So if you want to if you want to become a performance director, for example, right, you should reach out to performance directors, right, to understand number one what their position is, but also because um, you want those people to know that um, they should essentially um, help. Like they they. Now let me restart. So 
you're reaching out to performance directors if you want to have an SNC coach role in a professional team, because these are the people that hire those people. So number one, from a relationship perspective, you want to um, know them, but also you want to understand what they're looking for. So now, if you're a performance director, you should speak to um, the next level, right? And that could be, depending on the organization structure, could be a GM, could be a sporting director, could be whatever. Um, so you need to speak to those people and understand, hey, um, what is it that um, they're hiring for? So what I'm saying is I wanted to become a GM at some stage um, without going into further details. Why? So I said, like, okay, what do I actually need to do? Number one, I need to speak to CEOs because CEOs are hiring sporting directors. So and then you realize you can only speak to CEOs um, if you actually can speak the same language. And the CEOs speak the language of business because they need to organize not only the sporting side or the sporting operations, soccer operations in, in our case, but they also have to deal with the corporate side of things, right? So hence, in order to understand all of that aspect, marketing, sponsorship, um, finance, right? You need to understand what they're doing. So hence, I realized actually MBA is the only thing that will work for me in this case because it's only, you know, three three years or two years, depending if you do a full-time. I did uh, part-time while I was um, um, still working full-time. So, so my point is, for me, it was clear that this is what I need to do in order to actually eventually have the, sh the chance to become a, a, a GM. Yeah. Um, so that's how I, I chose to, to do that, um, that program. It doesn't necessarily mean everybody else should do it. it. In general, it helps if you learn, right? Even if I didn't want to become a GM, I still learned a ton and I understand so much more. And, and it broadened my horizon to also interact with GMs and with the board and with the um, you know other stakeholders in the organization because I can translate the sporting side of things into the business side of things and the other way around which is highly um, valuable um, even if I didn't want to you know climb up the ladder um, anymore but but in, in, in my case it was the aspirational aspect of it um, that drove me into it in the first place you know obviously this is a little bit of a uh a guarded question so you don't have to like divulge teams or specific details but does the you know obviously the the MBA gives you I guess a, a formal appreciation and language to talk to different stakeholders within performance particularly on the sort of more businessy end of things of course um, does it ever change how you kind of make decisions as a as a practitioner in in like the let's call it the performance space itself It it does. Uh, Sorry, it's a hard question that one. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough because you can, you you never know. Like again, you have your mental models and your 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 biases to a certain extent, and and you as a person change across your your um you know career and and your life based on your experiences. So it would be. T I think it's tough to pinpoint like oh yeah because of this I do this. I just, as a whole mashup, if you will, that's why, you know, decide. So I'm 100% sure that I make certain decisions differently now um, because of the, the acquired knowledge and, and frameworks and tools um, that I gained um, through the MBA. But I couldn't necessarily say for certain yeah. that... It is because of that, right? So that's kind of like the, the tough part, I, I suppose. But I'm, I'm sure I, I do. But which decisions now are actually based on uh, pure, you know, tried and error and, and um, experience versus, versus, oh, this is actually something I learned. It's, it's tough because it becomes all, all one, I think, and you make your own connections in your head. And that's why, okay, this time I decide like that but i'm sure i am yes yeah you can't live two versions of your own life um yeah but i always wonder because you know you you of course get um corporate companies bringing people from sport and athletes in um you know you rarely hear about i don't know a professional sports team pulling somebody from ibm in to talk about yeah um <laughs> corporate stuff i think the question is the question is that's something i also gained um through through the mba and for the dissertation is 
I guess it depends on what the what the um, overarching objective is, or like the mission, or what the the strategy of a certain club is, right? So there is instances when when clubs ownership groups or one owner brings in somebody from the corporate world only, somebody who has zero football experience, because um, it might be an experienced person in in finance, and the club is close to bankruptcy. So you want somebody who knows how to, you know, turn around um, a, a, you know, business entity, which a club is obviously um, from, from, you know, being close to bankrupt into a success because that person is not biased from sporting side of things. Now you need to obviously um, have people around that person then, but I think there is certain moments in time when it actually does make sense to bring somebody in. And it has happened um, in the past. But I think the instances or the specific examples are very niche. Um, but then I think people actually, outsiders, if you will, um, bring definitely value for that specific moment in time, for that specific club, um, for a specific time frame. Um, I think that is that is nothing to, that should be discounted um, as a as a actually good idea to do it's just oftentimes people have their have their you know they don't look left and right because of the fact that they don't think that some some outside entity or some outside um, person could actually add value again i think there's only niches where this is the case um, but actually there are there are good examples where that was successful and um, that's Awesome. I guess as well, like when you're in, you know, different sports teams or when, you, or when you speak to people at different teams, you know, the 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 top of the pyramid, the big decision makers on the more executive level can be making decisions like that, whether financial or whatever it is. And, you know, the tides can be changing and the people more, you know, siloed in their performance department can be kind of, you know, putting their hands in the air and being like, you know, why are we doing this as an organization? This is what we're trying to achieve. But I guess for you as somebody in high performance management, you're able to, you know, better detect what's going on at the top and probably actually align your performance department to the organizational shifts, which which probably only protects it as well. Yeah, I think that that is I think that's that's the main part in in you know my current position as much as it was before in in San Jose is is that you you learn, as I alluded to earlier, you learn certain frameworks and tools on, on how to set up, um, number one, a department or an organizational structure or or um, an operational model, if you will, um, within, in this case, you know, the sports performance department, um, which helps to, again, if you, if you create, if you think about efficiencies, okay, if you do this and this and this, you can go, Operations management and go like, okay, if I, I, I did a, a presentation once for, um, for, um, a GPS vendor, I, I'm not sure if that's one of your sponsors, which is why I'm not saying, um, <laughs> any name here. So the, the, my point is like, I, I did one on how to set up your, your weight room, um, if, and how to actually, you can calculate this based on, the knowledge of okay, this is how many um, people need to uh, I have. This is how much time I have for a session. This is how many tools I have, um, and this is how much it takes for for certain exercises to be executed. And then you can actually, um, if you know, like, and then it's it's called throughput time and, and all of these things. And then once you calculate that, you know, okay, do I have the tools to do it in this current way? If I do, okay, how do I need to set up the weight room now to make sure the session flow is according to that? So why I'm saying this, so now I can set up efficient, like an efficient weight room according to exactly my program, right? Um, so this is something within in the department. But yes, to your point is if I know what the strategy um, or plan, like strategy has many different names um, in, in the real world. If I know what the plan is and the objectives of, of the board or, or um, my CEO, um, then I can create a sub-strategy that feeds into that, um, which is more meaningful because of terminology, because of topics, um, because of the personnel I have available um, to, to fit into that overall, right? Give you an example, 
very easy without going into detail. Like if your club has a certain mission, right? How can you break or certain values? Both is, is valid. How can you break those down to your department, right? If, if let's say transparency is one of the big core values of, of your club, right? Then you go like, okay, we should match that values. If I have somebody in my, in my um, department who is not transparent or who doesn't believe that transparency is, is inherently, um, you know, a, a trait that should be followed, then it's not a good fit, right? So I do have power in that sense that I can support and um, what my, my club wants to achieve, um, right? So I think, or if whatever, building a better future is, is an objective of, of, of the club, then directly from my department, I can go like, okay, what does it mean? It means player development, Right. So then you can translate it into something meaningful for your staff. And the other way around, you can then tell the, the, the board or the front office, whatever, going like, yeah, well, we spend time with player development more than we spend with whatever 30 year old guys, although they're, they're potentially better right now, because one of your, you know, objective is to create a better future. So, you know, yeah, you can blame me now, but then I'm just doing what you tell me because this is what it means for us. Um, so now you can have have a you can take your personality or your or subjectivity out of the conversation, and this is then where you can have real good conversations with the board. You're like maybe you didn't think about this, but this is what it means for us. And you're like, oh yeah, hmm, true, okay. Is there? And then you can have a real conversation. Um, and I think that is something that that I think um, I've learned um, via my my studies. It's an interesting one. I think like in a in a customer service kind of parallel, you'll sometimes see businesses. And I remember a health club I worked at years ago had a had a wall that said, you know, you said this and we did that. And it's quite a good yeah. way to um, yeah. objectively and tangibly be like, you know, like you said, this is what the organization wants. So this is why we did what we did. And it's probably a, if the organization then ever changes routes, it's probably a good way for you to be hopefully involved in that front office or executive kind of direction um, when you when you can kind of link yourself to what they wanted in the first place I mean that's that's the hope right at the, at the end of the day but what it does allow you is it does give give you a seat at the table to for discussion points right it's still an up to you do I do I match you know the the acumen or the the amount of uh, skill they're looking for for certain things but just by pure association now that i can just listen to like without a filter right i can now un potentially understand more what they're looking for and how they argue for things and that in turn helps me to then be able to um I guess then once again, translate this into something meaningful for my staff, but also for me to like, okay, this is how those guys think. So I need to start thinking like that as well. When I look at things from a different angle versus my lens that I potentially now have as a performance director. Right. So that's, you know, it's, it's, it's the reflective part of that and being open to, to, um, like, you know, listening to others, I think. And then we oftentimes forgot about, uh, forget about that aspect. Change management is probably a logical place for us to for us to traverse to now, um, and I'm sure it flows probably off some of these examples. Um, you know whether the you know the executive level is making changes or whether you're new to a different team or something, and, and you've done the MBA, so I'm sure you've got I guess models or frameworks. How do you kind of now? approach it and i know that's incredibly broad but just go where go with this wherever you want yeah no for sure i mean there's yes there's there's different frameworks um that that exist and they're all worth worth uh, reading um but they also always only give you one piece of the puzzle right um because a framework is is a theoretical framework so based on everybody who wrote a paper knows, okay, at the end of the day, you kind of like need to try to put something together, though it's much more complicated. Um, so, and frameworks try to do that. And there's, you know, let's, let's use the 80, 20 rule. 80% of the time you can potentially use it, but 
20% of the time, you know, it's not, but still it's, it's enough to create a framework. Um, I think it's definitely helpful in, in your, just purely based on that, in how you approach certain things. So understand, okay, first step I need to do X, second step I need to do um, Y and, and so on. The, the main component in change management is though, you know, and I, I sound like a broken record, but you need to listen and need to observe what's going on at the moment. You need to understand the environment and by the environment that obviously includes the people um, in, in that specific environment. So, you know, you can say like, oh yeah, you know, I, I'm clearly, I need to change. I need to change whatever um, my staff. But then you go like, well, I can't because I can't just, they have contracts, right? And then we don't have, like, to use the example from earlier, your club close to bankruptcy, right? So this is a random example. I'm not related to any of, of my clubs. Just want to make this uh, this here. Um, I'll state that. So if you're close to bankruptcy and you realize, okay, I'm, my staff is not good enough. Right, you go like, well, I know I need to change things, but I can't because I can't fire them because I don't have the money to pay them severance packages or pay the rest of their contracts. And then on top of that, get other people in. So, so you go like, okay, one thing is understanding what you need to change. The other thing is when you do it and how you do it. Um, so, so now you have the why, how, and, and what, right? So if you go back to the golden circle of Simon Sinek, who potentially a lot of people read that book. So it's also a little bit about change management. It's always about finding those parallels. Um, so you go like, okay, I know what I need to change, but then you understand the environment. And, and which means if you come in into a club that's at the bottom, another good example, right? Everybody's willing to change because everybody understands that it can't get any worse. So of course, let's try this, you know? This guy is new. This guy um, knows what he's doing. So let's just follow him, whatever. So you can be very, you know, very fast, if you will, because there's urgency already built in, right? The urgency is we suck, right? We need to get better. Okay. So the urgency is there. Then you need to find your advocates. Okay. Who are my change agents now across, you know, the organization that, and, and that means, you know, maybe within the team. So meaning players within my staff, within you know the front office to kind of like um, drive that change uh, quickly across the the board right um but you can also come in into a very successful club right let's say who won the title um and then as you know nothing is perfect and people make the biggest mistakes in success because they get complacent and whatnot um so you think, okay, but you can't come in and change everything, although you identify, you identify the what, right? But you go like, you can't do it because you can't tell somebody what he or she does is not good because they go like, what are you talking about? I just won the title, you know, so don't argue with me. Um, so, so the point is now, okay, how do you go about that change? So you know you need to do something. But now you need to go like, when is the right timing? So you, you look into understanding, like I said, now the, the environment, but also, okay, maybe I start, it's, a, it's an in incremental change versus a radical change, right? So uh, or what are the big rocks? So, okay, you, you, you know you need to change five things, random example. Um, so I can change all the five, which potentially I could have done with the other example right away um, because people are already you know, like this, but in a successful environment, you go, okay, which is, the, which is the one thing that I can, based on my philosophy and my personality and what I believe in, what is the one thing that I think we need to change right now? And people are not necessarily afraid of change or opposed to change. People change all the time, you know, um, if, if you think about it. Um, so that's kind of like a myth that I, I came to believe is not true. People don't want, people are, they don't want to change. They just are afraid of what change means to them. If you tell somebody, you know, you take that shampoo and your hair will glow, and there's a 100% chance it will happen, people change their shampoo, right? But if, if you tell them, well, you know, hmm, you know, I think you should just change the, the shampoo because I don't think it might be the best one for you, they can still go like, well, the next one 
might actually be worse for my hair. So they're not afraid of change. They're afraid of what change means to them. So in this case, now you go, the one thing that you want to change, right, um, to keep it as, as low level as possible. And then with the one thing, you can still go like, okay, do I want to be incremental or do I want to be radical? Um, so you stay true to yourself, number one. And number two, um, you then that gives you the opportunity to kind of like say, okay, what is the one maybe with the least resistance where people go like, okay, this is something. And look, this didn't, you're still winning. So now let's do the next thing. Okay, so then you go step by step and maybe it's not one thing each month. Maybe it's one thing each season, right? You just need to be then with with the front office. You identify, you say like, this is what I identified, for example, right? Um, you need to be very kind of like, okay, in order to do what you want me to do, you know, and then now you set your time frame. You go like, I can do that, but there may be some repercussion if you want me to do it within one year. Or you go like, okay, you want me to do that, but it takes me three years because this and this and this and this needs to change. And for this and that reason, I believe we can't do that that quickly. Or you want me to do that quickly, but that means X, Y, and Z for you. It's like priorities once again. You know, If you have five different things on your plate and your manager tells you, I want you to do this, like uh, an appropriate reaction is, that's fine. I can do that for you. But which of the other five things do you want me to drop instead? So, and that's kind of like the same thing with change management. It, it, um, okay, I can do that, but it comes with a, um, you know, a caveat. In this case, maybe time, um, right? I think that kind of, you know, would you like me to do this or this? Because I think that because piece is really valuable because you're not, without it, you're asking the person above you to do your job for you in some ways. But by just adding that in and showing your appreciation of, yeah, repercussions or benefits, I guess, it includes them rather than makes you seem <laughs> incompetent. You know, it gives them, it, yeah. it gives everyone an appreciation of the the, the plan. And, and and I think, yeah, no, no, I think you're absolutely um, spot on there. I think what it helps as well is, and this is, this is why, you know, middle managers just to, as myself, um, I think are so critical because if, if you understand now the business part, but you also understand the the football operations part or soccer operations, but then you can translate. You're like, okay, I know from this angle, it looks like this, but I will tell you from this angle, that means X or this is interpreted as such. Um, and then you're like, oh, really? Ah, we, didn't, uh, we didn't think about that. And then they're actually grateful. And to your point, then you become an ally and then you become valuable because they realize, okay, you're a translator, you're a facilitator of the overall, again, let's call it strategy or plan to then trickle down into your different um, you know, verticals, if you will. And that's why I think middle managers um, in professional sport, based on my experience, I think are all often you know led to their own de- or left to their own devices um or don't don't think about the to, to put it in a subjective position they don't think about hey what actually how much power they actually have if they would just you know uh, um spend time in understanding what what top top or senior management um, um, wants uh, because they have reasons. The same thing with you as a parent, right? You can go to either Italy for vacation or you can go to, you know, Cornwall. If you're in England, you go like, yeah, Italy is nice. We got lots of sun, but we have four children. So that means it costs that much. So we can only go for a week, but you can tell your four children, hey, we can have a three-day, a three-week vacation in Cornwall. So, you know, like, which do you want more? Um, so there's always in any in any decision, there's two sides of the of the story. And there's and you go like, okay, which and this is this is where it becomes then hard. And this is where the decision making um, becomes kind of like your own thing. As in, this is why there's the same decision to be made. I'll make it that. Um, or I make this one, and you make that one. None of them is wrong. We just have potentially different priorities. And as long as you can communicate that priority to 
than the front office or, or the, the board, whatever, or your sporting director, your GM, whatever it is. Um, and on the other hand, also to those um, that you serve, which is your team. I serve my staff, right? Go like, then they can't say anything against it. They can say like, okay, then you're not the right fit. That's fine, right? But they then they would still appreciate the fact that, okay, you're not the right fit for us, but um, you might be the right fit for a different organization, for example, right? So I think this is this is a big component there. Like nothing in life comes for free. Everything we do, you can buy a pickup or you can buy a sports car, but you don't get both at the same time. You can get the safest car out there or you can once again get the fastest car. You can't combine everything in one. And you, because of your four children, don't have four children, I think. Um, but anyhow, you may be choosing the choosing the um, the safe car, right? It's not the wrong choice, but I might not use it because you're like, I'm just by myself, so yeah, I can drive the car against the wall. You know, nothing much happens besides I die. So, but in your case, you know, it's a different story. I'm, I'm aware of time, and um, we we managed to get the motorsport analogy in there, which is critical for every high performance podcast and, uh, and conversation. <laughs> Um, where's the where's the best place for people to to follow you and you know get your career updates or see what you're up to? Yeah, I think um, I need to do a better job. I I say that in every single podcast as well. Potentially also like every other um, practitioner, um, I should be more active on social media. <laughs> um, but um, essentially, I think the most active um, I would be on LinkedIn. And people can uh, reach out, like my full name is on there, reach out like that. Or then um, obviously Twitter and Instagram, you know, text me as well. That's, a, that's good good ways to, to um, you know, if you want people um, to get in contact with me. I think um, these are three, three options. I will say, though, I think I'm most likely um, answering on or the quickest on LinkedIn because I'm not so often on the other. Um, on the other channels you're probably wise for that well um I, I i thank you a lot for your time it's been it's been a fascinating insight and um really enjoyed talking to you today thank you Dido. thanks for the good questions i really appreciate that